0: Well, good morning, good morning. All right, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your Sabbath. We thank you for this service. We thank you for these saints. We thank you for Redeemer Church, Father, a place that uh, where we can come and be ministered to and minister to others. We thank you for our confession of sin. We thank you, uh, Father, for hearing our prayers, for teaching us from your word. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would be in our midst now, that you would give us understanding give us eyes of faith, we pray, Father, that you would not spare our idols, that you would burn down our kingdoms, that you would free us from our ghettos, that you would give us a heart for one another and for this, the loss of this world. We thank you for your son and his ministry to us now, whose name we pray, amen. So the, there isn't really a specific text for today. Um, It's kind of like, uh, I mean, we sin, so my text today is the Bible. (laughs) Uh, You start in Genesis, and uh, yeah, there's some sin there, and then uh, you kind of go all the way through to the end, and there's more sin all the way through. So you can pretty much pick any verse, and that's what this is about, sin. So the question that I want to pose to you this morning to get our minds around what I'm about to talk about is, have have you ever found yourself um, committing the same horrible sin that you've committed before that you hate, that you know you hate, that you know is wrong? Has that ever happened to you? I don't just mean like garden... And I'm not talking about garden variety sins. Yes, you are going to be short-tempered when you're sleepy. Okay, that happens. Love covers a multitude. I'm talking about a specific sin. Say gossip, drunkenness. uh, Very, very, very distinct sins of pride. Do you ever find yourself committing these sins and then wondering, how did I get here? How did this happen? Why am I still doing this? Yes, thank you, Stephen. Yes, okay, good. There's at least two now. I'll just turn in this direction. Okay. We we find ourselves. Um, th- there's actually, I'll just be frank, there was a sin that I was committing on a regular basis, and, and what I actually started to do after a lot of frustration is actually started keeping track of the circumstances leading up to day before, day after, and, and I actually was taking notes on certain things that were occurring before I fell into the sin. And actually, it took about seven months, and I, and I, I found, figured out that there is a series of things that occur leading into this sin. And, and I was rather taken aback by this. I was very confused by this, and I was very happy about, about having discovered this. And, of course, the first, um, the first thing that where it all started is pride. I think i 'm going to lick it this time, right I think i 'm good on this one now, and, and that is always the first step to falling when you think that you you 've you've, you've kicked its butt this time, so even in telling the story i 'm a little worried sometime this week it 's going to happen to me but but I, but I see there 's actually a pattern and and when, and when I avoid the things that led to it, I have not committed the sin in a great deal of time I, I, I have at this particular point in my life say i 'm free of it um, well', we'll uh, it possibly happened again? Yes. And, and part of the thing is, I, I would walk out of the door here and commit the sin like today. I'd do it. My flesh loves the sin. And if God didn't hold me back, I wouldn't, I would commit this sin a great deal more often than I do. So, so understanding that, this is part of the whole process. I am incapable of holding myself back from this. And so I've got to go to someone who can hold me back. Someone who's bigger than the sin. And, and on top of that, there are these, liturgical elements to the sin that lead me there almost, like little, like little breadcrumbs. I'm going back to the house with uh, Hansel and Gretel. And, and this is what I'm going to talk about today, habitual sin. We, we are creatures of habit. There's no avoiding this. We are liturgical creatures. I'm, I use liturgy and habit interchangeably. Uh, as you, you, We come here. We have a call. We sing two songs. We read the word. We sing a song, we have the prayer, we sing, right? It's a, it's in a very distinct liturgy. There's a reason for that. God created us to be this way, but also our, uh, we we can't help ourselves from functioning this way, and our whole lives are this way. Um, how many of you sleep on the same side of the bed every day? Right? It, it's, uh, it's like I don't have to think about it. I, there are so many things in our lives that are like this, though. Um, some people, there's studies... Uh, There's a colonel that I I will quote a great deal next week who who thinks our lives are just a series of habits. They think cultures are actually just a bunch of habits colliding with one another. Um, and, And it's because think about if you had to seriously think through all the things you do in a day, who could get through a day? I mean, right? If you had to think about tying your shoes, if you had to think about making pasta, if you had to think about doing laundry, that would, I mean, who has the energy for that? I would be dead by lunch. Um, and and people, how many of you guys have ever gone to work and not realized, like you didn't even think about getting there? You're just there. Well, that's because you have something in your brain called a basal ganglia. It's a ridiculous name. I don't know who names these things. This is scientists for you. But there is actually a center in your brain where your habits live. And uh, again, we're going to talk a great deal about this next week, but this is where your habits live. This is why people who have brain damage, uh, say they've had a stroke, um, or, or they're struggling to remember their grandkids and that kind of thing, actually can remember how to tie their shoes. Somebody who doesn't remember their wife, but can actually remember how to make pancakes. Like, this is what led them down this, this path. How does the brain work this way? Uh, the, one person they were, they were studying, he'd, he'd had some kind of degenerative disease, like there was fluid on his brain that was protecting it, but then eventually what it was doing was eating away his brain. But in the center of his brain was his basal ganglia. So, the doctors asked him to draw a picture of his house, and he couldn't do it. But then he got up and went, He, you know, they, they asked him, which room would you leave, which door would you go out of this living room to get to the bathroom? He's like, I have no idea. Ten minutes later, forgetting having been asked the question even, he gets up and walks out, goes to the bathroom, washes his hand, and comes back. Right? This is how powerful this portion of our brains are. And, and what I want to talk about this week and next week is, is renewing your minds. Now, I know we've all heard that before. Right? We're renewing our minds. Ligonier is built on this idea <laughs> because it's, it's a good idea. Renew your minds. But we've also only heard about renewing your minds strictly in intellectual in an intellectual way. Right? you gotta, you got to unlearn some knowledge and learn some new knowledge. But I think as science reveals things like this about our minds, renewing your mind is renewing your basal ganglia. There, there's stuff in there, some hardwired stuff that you got to get in there and rip out and you've got to form some new habits. you got to get rid of the old habits. And this is how a habit works. Uh, this is fascinating. There's a cue or a prompt. There's an action. And then there's a very distinct reward. Um, uh, nobody likes to be compared to lab rats, but lab rats, right? They, they, this is the experiment they do. The lab rat, they measure their brain, and the brain is just firing on all cylinders as it's like sniffing around. And eventually it figures out it has to turn left to get the chocolate, and it goes down there and gets the chocolate. And then over time, they measure the brain, and the brain isn't even functioning. Like it's its like it's in autopilot. The rat hears the bell, which is the prompt. It runs down, turns left, and gets the chocolate. And, and I love all of you, but you are like that, right? The, the alarm goes off, you go to the coffee machine, or you pick up your phone. That's mostly what we do and we scroll. Uh I I turn the same direction out of my house every morning when I go to work. Um in fact when I first went to Shoreline I almost drove to Redmond because this is I mean I'm so you know this is how it works. We are like lab rats. Our brains are just on autopilot most of the time. Now the problem is you, the ability your 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 brain cannot discern between a habit it should have and a habit you shouldn't. It it doesn't know. It has no idea. So if your habit are, your habits are sinful, or your habits are, are godly, it, it doesn't care. It, it, it just does what you essentially teach it to do. Um, and this is why so many of us fall into sins, is, is we don't understand how habitual it is. You're falling into a sin, and, and there are so many habits of, involved in it, that unless you change the habits, you will continue to do it. it it's just that simple. Um, and most of us don't like to think about this, but this is how our brains work. So um, building off of everything else we've talked about, uh, we, we live in ghettos. Mostly we live in those ghettos, I believe, because there are all kinds of habits that keep us there that we don't really talk about and address. And, and one of them being isolation, which we dealt with last week. We, there is no reason for any of us to ever feel alone. Jesus fulfills every relationship need that we have. He, he's like the 82nd Airborne. He parachutes into that ghetto. He's there with us, and he's now ready to lead us out. Okay? And, and what, what he had were all kinds of good habits. What, he, he constantly is doing the same thing. Right? And, and St. Paul does the same thing. If you go and you read about St. Paul, what does he always do? He goes to a new city, he goes to the synagogue, and he goes through the same process. And then he, and then he, and then he can, if people respond, Right, He has habits there. He appoints elders, does more teaching. Then he moves to a new city. Um, the Bible is full of, of this kind of thing. Uh, how did David not know for a year that he had fallen into the sin? Because it was, it was a habit now. Um, he liked to send the army out, stay at home, and sit on the roof and watch soft porn, um, as <laughs> Gina Snyder referred to it. Because what else is he doing up on the roof? It's, it's, it's late at night, my men are out kicking butt and taking names, so I'm just going to chill here on this roof and check out the chicks who are all bathing. Because what, women bathed when at, in the evening so people wouldn't see them. And, and, and in that culture, men didn't go on the roof because women were bathing on the roof. <laughs> I mean, so here he has these habits that he's fallen into and he's so far from what he should be doing that he, it's not even, it's been a long process. He doesn't even know. Jesus was the exact opposite. If you go through the scriptures, it's, it's he goes off to a solitary place to pray. He goes into a town. Uh, he goes to the synagogue. He does very much what St. Paul did. He, he has this whole process that he goes through. He asks questions. People ask him questions, but he doesn't even answer them. He asks more questions, uh, personal questions. He has this whole process that he goes over again and again with people because he is a creature of habit, like we all are. Now, Jesus is our friend. We're going to back up, focus here for a second. Jesus is our friend. And friends have uh, habits too, don't they? You have a friend, you like to go to um, a certain place, right? Uh, I have a friend, and every time he's in town, which isn't that often, we go eat at the same place. Uh, it would be weird if we ate anywhere else at this point. Um, the way, like, it, it, Even though it's only like every year that we're there, they remember us because they're like, oh, it's those two guys who only see each other every year. And I, I'm sure all of you have those same same habits. As, as couples, you have these habits. As friends, you have these habits. As families, you have these habits. Um, the problem is, we're, we're the person... I just saw this the other night when I was out for dinner. There, there's this couple, and the husband won't put his phone down, right? There's wife. She's looking good. They're eating together, and, and the guy dude's got his phone in his face. So we're, we're sitting here with Jesus, and we're that person. Um this is mine. Uh, you go to a bar, you're hanging out with a buddy, and you're not really listening to what you're saying because you're just looking up at the TV in the corner. Um, and it's amazing how anything on Sports Center can distract me, even sports I don't care about. Um, but, but these two are habits, right? And, and what I think is right now with Jesus, we're that guy. We're the guy who won't put the phone away. We're the guy staring over his shoulder. We have all these competing liturgies and habits that are distracting us from the real deal from the person that we should be spending more time talking to. So what we need to do is address the habits. What are your habitual sins? At at this particular moment, I don't even really care what they are. This applies to everyone. Whatever your sin is, we're going to talk a lot about sexual sin today. There is a reason for that. Um, As a friend of mine who runs the counseling center over at Canyon Hills says, I mean, really, it's all sexual sin. When it comes down to it, it's, I'm shocked when it's not. <laughs> because in most people's lives, that's what it is. So we're going to talk a lot about that, but there are other sins. Whatever your sin is, there is a pattern in which you engage in that sin. So here's my example. I'm going to explain Proverbs chapter 7. This is lengthy. I'm going to read it. But you guys listen. Listen for this young man's habits. Listen for what he is just on autopilot doing and not really thinking about what it's going to cost him, okay? Chapter 7, beginning in verse 6. For at the window of my house, I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. He sounds like King David. And behold, the woman meets him dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, now at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifice, and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly. I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen, I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, alloys, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her, as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast, till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. Now, there's one very important thing I want to address before we get into this foolish young man. Uh, and again, oh, you're not a foolish young man, so this doesn't apply to you. Well, no, King David wasn't a foolish young man either, but it, it, he had a very similar process to fall into his sin. So don't let the young man who's not wise throw you here. You, in fact, are this guy. But before we get there, let's talk about the prostitute for a moment, because that's, that's what she is. It makes it really important, uh, it it really takes the time to point out the fact that she had gone to church that day. So she had gone and she had done her religious thing, and now she's ready to party. (laughs) And, and I think that this is something that we need to think about just for a moment, as, as a group of people, because this is something that we're prone to do. Um, we, we sit down and eat and drink and get up to play, as it says in Exodus chapter 32, verse 6. Remember the Israelites? They make a golden calf. They call it the Lord who took us out of Egypt, and they bow down and worship it, and they eat and drink, and then they get up to play. Really, the word is fornicate, but it says play. You can fit a lot into play. Drunkenness, debauchery. How often are you taken in by external religious ceremony, when really, you're not really worshiping the real Lord. Right? Why, why was God so mad about the golden calf? They were calling it the Lord. They were offering sacrifices to it. Isn't that what they're supposed to do? But what were they really worshiping? Was it just a cover? How often do we, do you come here to church and then go home and have people over and essentially it's just a drinking party? Uh, I, I will confess I've done that. In the midst of what I think is some deep fellowship, right? We came together, we worshiped the Lord, and now we're, now we're ready to cut loose. And what we end up doing is just having a party like my neighbors are having a party, who are unbelievers. Pass the wine, pass the beer, pass the scotch. You want more? (laughs) Do you need to take an Uber ride? Right? Should you ever have to take, should we ever have to offer Uber to someone at a post-church function? Should we really ever have to do that? And, and we're very easily taken in by this. But it's not just this. How often have you you know, done the family worship, you pray the Lord's Prayer with the kiddos, you put them in bed, you kiss their head, and you go and you watch some NC-17 movie, Game of Thrones. You've done your religious bit, you were the good example for the little kids that they needed to have, and then you're off in the other room watching Mike David on the Roof softball. Because what we do is we cover ourselves with re- externals, when really in our heart we're, we're just about Self-gratification. Um, and, and doing the out external religious thing doesn't doesn't change the fact that we're worshiping an idol. False comfort. Um, the false comfort fo- followed by a church service doesn't make it less of a fa- false comfort. But I digress. Let's now turn to our young man. He says he doesn't have any understanding. His brain is empty. He lacks sense. He's out wandering late at night. He should be at home probably studying for his math test, but he's not. He's out wandering the street, and just what, 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 ha- what street does he just happen to go down? The one that he knows the prostitute lives on. So he's putting himself in harm's way. He's tempting the tempter. He's almost daring her to come after him. She doesn't have to wander around to find him, like it goes on to say. He, he knows exactly where she lives, and he's going to go that way. How valuable are self-discipline, self-control, constant godly employment, active energy in the pursuit of God? They're preservatives under divine blessing. That's what they are. He, he's idle. He's, he's not just surfing the net, if you know what I'm saying. He's not just um, on Pinterest looking up a good idea to give the niece a birthday present. right? If you're just wandering around on Pinterest late at night you're really just, I mean, you're just tempting to, be, to covet all the day long. Uh, it's not just about sexual sins. Do certain things make you angry? Do you avoid them? Or do you just put yourself right on their path? Are, are you aware in your own life of what it is that occurs an hour, two hours, three hours a day before you totally lose your mind with your kids? Are, are, you, are you empty-headed and, and ava- putting yourself, av- making yourself available to a, a wayward woman who wants to fill you up. Okay. And again, forget the fact that it's sexual sin. She's offering him fullness. And he's empty, and so he's ready. And, and I'm sure, you know, a little kissing, fine. Soft bed, okay, cool. But then when it really got down to business, he may have even put up a fought, fight, but what's the fight worth at that point? He gave up like four moves ago. Now, this is how sin works. Looking at the unholy thing will lead to touching the unholy thing, which will lead to tasting the unholy thing, which will lead to consuming the unholy thing, and unchecked, the unholy thing will consume you. All he saw was the bait. He never saw the rope, right? The big giant rope, the bait's in the middle, and he's as easy to catch as Wiley Coyote, this kid. But aren't we all? We never see the bait. Uh, you get up in the morning, and uh, th- this was one guy I was counseling. Don't worry, not in this community, so I can tell the story. But he seemed, he, he found it fascinating that on days when he would end up watching porn, it almost always started with a really cute jogger. He He, he eventually had that kind of self-awareness. It starts early in the morning. Something is presented to me that I ought not to think about too long or look at too long, and, and before I know it, it's, oh, that always happens. So we got into that a little bit, and it turns out that's just the first move, because Satan never just comes at you, right? Satan never just puts a gun in your hand and says, hey, kill somebody, right? That's never how sin is. Sin, you don't just wake up one morning and become a drunk. You don't just wake up one morning 300 pounds overweight. This is never how it works. A happily married person doesn't just decide to have an affair all of a sudden. right? Think of Job. Does Satan ever come right at him? God works through means. His grace comes to us through bread, through wine, through song, through word, through people. Sin works the same way. Satan, when he's going after Job, he works through what? He works through a a false tribe. He works through an earthquake. He works through boils on the skin. And all the while, what he really wants is Job to curse God. But he doesn't just come to them and say, listen, I will kill you right now unless you curse God. That's never rarely, especially in our culture, how it works. Satan is too smart for that. Satan wants you to look a little here and look a little here. Take this step and that step. A little more, a little more, a little more. And before you know it, you're wily coyote hanging upside down from the tree wondering how you got, how you got here. We don't recognize the bait for bait. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. If your habitual sin is gossiping, as soon as someone is going to present information to you that you know no one else knows, I would be very afraid. If you're a person who's, who struggles with certain sexual sins, right when you go to the grocery store, only get in line where there are men who are helping you. Now, that seems super pietistic, that seems super puritanical, but this is the kind of thing that we do not think about. We do not take sin seriously. Satan is a thousand times smarter than anyone in this room. He knows the Bible better than you do. He's been around God longer than you have. He understands him better than you do. He knows exactly how to get you. And you think, you know, here I am again. Same sin as yesterday. Same sin as last week. The same sin that is ruining my marriage, that's ruining my fellowship with other believers, that's ruining my friendship with Jesus Christ. And and what we do is we get get so upset about that instead of stopping and thinking. Think about it. Think about the sin in your life. Is it pride? Is it anger? Is it lust? Is it overeating, overdrinking? Do you desperately want to quit smoking and you don't know how? Uh, this is one I actually know something about. I started smoking when I was 13. Non-filtered camel cigarettes, I might add. And after I became a Christian, I realized I needed to stop doing it. It was my personal conviction to stop doing it. And, and this is what, I learned this lesson long ago. I didn't really realize it, though. Because I would do, I would always sit outside of a Starbucks drinking black coffee, smoking cigarettes, and writing really bad poetry in this little book that I had. And, and I could not stop smoking. And so, you know what I had to do is give up coffee. And and what's fascinating is my basal ganglia still likes this one because I can come out of, this happened, uh, not like two years ago even, very recent. I come out of a Starbucks, I'm drinking the black coffee and there's somebody smoking and, and I smell it and I just drop the coffee right in a garbage can and left because I was like, I will end up at the AMP and buying cigarettes here in like two minutes because there's, I couldn't, I couldn't taste the coffee here without the smell here of the cigarettes. And, and I mean, I'm, I'm telling you, th- this sounds intense. I- I'm accused sometimes of being intense. <laughs> but if, if you, if, everyone laughed, I like that. But if you knew how much sin there was in my life, you would be this intense too. Now, I'm sure all of you aren't quite like that. But we're in ghettos and we can't get out. We, we refuse to look at what's keeping us here. And it's not just that we have this enemy who's smarter than us. There are other habits that we have. The, the one that I think m- many of us suffer from, okay, maybe you're a very pristine kind of person. Maybe you're pretty squeaky clean. Maybe this whole section up till now you find theologically interesting but doesn't really apply to you. I have a hard time believing that, but it's possible. But there are other habits. One that I call sins past, present, and future. Okay, And what I mean by this is that we have all sinned. We have all had sin committed against us. It's not a theory. They have names. They have places. They have dates and times. They have memories. Past sins are real. There are historical facts in our lives. That knowledge is the basis of a lot of ghetto building. Because we have experienced sin and tasted sin's fruit, we want to avoid it. We know sin is still going on, and we like to forego it right? It's not just sins in the past. You look around and you know, you see the speck in somebody else's eye and you're like, I know it's just a speck, but that guy's armed and dangerous. I know what he can do with that speck. I I don't want that anywhere near me. I don't want it near my kids. I don't want it near my my spouse. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to keep that on the other side of the ghetto wall because we've experienced it. We all know what sin is, we know that it's going on, and what we would like to do, because we assume it's going to happen in the future, is just keep it away from us. It's much easier just to associate with people who are very forgiving, who we have that tacit agreement with where I'm not going to mention yours if you don't mention mine. Right? This is what spouses are good at. Uh, Steve is correct. If you ask your spouse, they will tell you. Now, the question is, why didn't they tell you before you asked? Uh, we all think, I mean, we all got exactly what he meant. It would take our spouse about 0.37 seconds to tell us what the sin is. The problem that we have is we, we spend so much time with just them, and they never say anything unless we ask. And that, that's dangerous ground. That, that's a whole habit that we have in married, in marriage that is very dangerous. Now, I have some examples. Tell me if any of these sound familiar. This gal in the foyer interrupted me constantly. She wouldn't stop talking about herself. She never asked me one single question about myself. And I can handle that for a few minutes on Sunday, but I'm not taking that out to lunch. I'm not taking that show on the road. I will just do my due diligence here, have a brief conversation, and I'm out. This one is actually me. This is I did, I did this to somebody. <laughs> dude borrowed two movies last time he was here and I haven't seen them in two years I haven't been back to your house in two years but still I did borrow them um, and what's funny about this is I actually I'm really I, I can't believe Dean ever loans me anything because he actually gave me something for so long that he, he when he was over at my house he asked to borrow it because he didn't realize it was his and uh, I was like oh yeah sure <laughs> right but we've all had that guy you loan a book to him you never get it back they spill wine on the carpet Their kids break, your kids' toys that they just got for Christmas. And so you're like, okay, I will have families with kids over, not that family. Because that we've experienced that. That's frustrating, isn't it? I've actually had my kids' toys broken that they just got for Christmas, and that's frustrating. And I understand personally why you would use that to have some distance. Now, you guys have all had me over. So, I mean, there's tons we could say about that. But we won't. Just think of some times. But this is what we get into. You get into close contact with people. It's not as, it's not a Thomas Kincaid painting. It's not this cozy, comfy spot down by the river where the snow is falling just right. Real fellowship, real community is painful. As I said last week, <clears throat> Jesus' is hands and feet, that's us. We're his hands and feet. And they were pierced. So does you know we all want his life now, where he's sitting at the right hand of the Father and he doesn't have to do too much. We don't want his life when he was alive. We want his life now, right? We'll be your hands and feet now. They're resting. <laughs> we're down with that plan, but the hands and feet that were walking around, mm, that were pierced, mm, that sounds unpleasant, and so we keep people away. I mean. I have more examples, right? That family that you have to have over, you gotta, it's like you've got to drive to a Wyoming like, farm to find all of the right ingredients to make food for them because you don't even understand what they eat. It's like, how do you afford to live that way? No wonder they have to like, drop ship food in from out of state from some organic farm because, I mean, who, who has time for that? And, and what, you know, So then what people do is like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to hang out with people who like MSG because they're easier going. They're not so puritanical, right? Who who knows why they eat that way, right? Have you ever asked them? You know, maybe you have somebody who, like me, who only eats MSG, who brings a bottle of it over to the house and be like, "Can I spread this MSG on some things? Can we stir it in to this soup that you made?" We (sighs) relationships are hard on egos and hard on carpets, and and that is enough to keep people away. That's enough to keep people away. Now, the last um, process I want to talk about here, the last liturgy, the last set of habits, is distraction. Um, and and you, you may want to dodge the first two that I've mentioned. I don't. I, no one can dodge this one. Not even for a moment can you fake to dodge this one. The habits of distraction. A distraction can come in many forms. A new amusement a persistent worry, a vain aspiration, or even a necessary duty. It is something that diverts our minds from whatever care or demand that monopolizes our heart, right? My heart is troubled, and so what I'm going to do is have this distraction that is going to distract me from my troubled heart. Now, Christ can alleviate all of our cares and concerns, but that is more complicated than simply turning the TV on. Getting out of the Bible and studying the Word of God Drawing near to your friend, looking down from the TV right into his eyes, talking to him, having that face-to-face. That's a lot of work, as I've already, I think, made clear. What's a lot easier is turning music on. What's a lot easier is going to the movies. What's a lot easier is picking a book up. What's a lot easier is a 99-cent download on your phone, which you could get hours and hours and hours of heart-avoiding um, distraction out of it. Right? It's amazing what 99 cents can get you. A lot of peace. But it's fake peace. It, it, it's the kind of peace you have in a ghetto. We face sanctified distractions and unsanctified distractions. We face soul-filling distractions and soul-deadening distractions. We face necessary interruptions and worldly interruptions. We worry about being an interruption, so many of us don't really cry out to one another. We don't really get involved in one because everyone is so busy. I don't want to distract them. I've heard that a lot. And, and that's, that sounds very noble. I don't really, I think if you went a little deeper, there'd be more there. But not wanting to be a distraction to people sounds great, but it's just, it's just an excuse. We prefer interruptions that please us and are annoyed by interruptions that require something of us. Here's an example. A, tri- a child's cry in the middle of the night is one distraction we do not find to be too pleasant. But in the middle of the day, when you hear the box thump on the doorstep and you're in the middle of whatever, that's a very good distraction. Sweet, my stuff came. Nobody likes their neighbor coming by unannounced. We don't mind our friend calling unannounced to give us tickets to something. Right? We're like, yeah, Mike, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm all about being distracted. Uh, If if someone's calling me with baseball tickets, that's fine. Somebody wants to call and bring dinner over, that's great. But the distraction of taking dinner over to someone else, I mean, that's. We're busy. Life is complex and distraction management is. Very necessary. Now, I'm going to read a, uh, some verses here that talk about this in a very specific way that I think is very specific to what we suffer from here at Redeemer. Luke 10:38 through 42. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house, and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted by much serving, And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Now, I think a lot of us have trouble with this because she's serving. She's being very selfless. Isn't it a noble and righteous thing to serve everyone so that they don't have to serve themselves so they can listen to Jesus. She's taken a lawful thing. She's taken something that's glorious, something that's godlike, and she's actually made it an idol. She's using something she ought to do as a distraction from what she should do because of when she's doing it. Now this is this is might actually be very difficult for us to understand. But I just want you to go here with me for a moment. Martha is serving and she is being selfless, but it It's actually a sin in this sense. She's ignoring Jesus by doing something Jesus wants her to do, and that makes it hard to understand. It's the same when our families become our ghettos. We neglect evangelism for family time. We're too busy to go to discipleship class because we want to sleep in. We're missing church for a birthday party or some other recreational activity. Right? I mean, come on. You're missing church for what? What's really keeping you from here? Something you couldn't do on Saturday? Well, Sunday was the only time we could get everyone together. Do it next week then. But but, that sounds very legalistic, doesn't it? I mean, there's a lot of people not here today, and do I think they're sinning? Actually, no. I mean, family vacations and stuff, that's one thing. Uh, we go on a family vacation. Typically, it's very hard to find a church. Uh, sometimes to even though I don't always should make this argument. It's nice just to stay home. I get that. I understand that. But if you're habitually missing church because there's something going on that you could have done on a different day, that's, that's iffy. I, I, I would really um, pray about that and think about that. Because you're doing something that's lawful, say, a birthday party. Nobody says birthday parties are unlawful. You're, you're prioritizing it over something, though, and that's creating problems. Um, how, how would we all feel about a husband who neglects his children and his wife because he's so busy doing ministry? We would all raise up, you know, right? We'd have a problem with that. But what about the guy who avoids evangelism and discipleship with other people because he spends all of his time with his wife and his family? I would say that person is sinning. The fact that we're all uncomfortable with what I just said, I think reveals a lot about what we have going on. You're so busy with your family, you have no time to be discipled, to engage in discipleship in any way, shape, or form, to go to prayer meetings, to go to this or to go to that. Uh, And like I was saying last week, um, Dean teaches a sermon on prayer, suddenly prayer meetings, it's up by 15 people. The following week, we haven't quite worked that habit into our hand. By the next month, it's back down to four. Okay, Doing something lawful prioritizing it over something that is more necessary is a problem. We make, you know, the kids distract us, but aren't we a little grateful that we have so many kids to distract us? It's a lot easier at this stage of my life to disciple them than to disciple you guys. And the temptation is to be like, yeah, I'm busy. I'm so busy. But, I mean, what has God called us to do? Is being a family man and a husband the only thing he's called us to do? Being a wife and being a mother, is that all that he's called us to do? We, we don't like imbalance in one direction, but we're okay with it in another direction. But it's, you know, recreation. That's the one we usually attack, so I'll punch that one around for a few moments. Do you know that the average American spends 70 hours a month watching television? I, this is irony right here. It actually takes 70 hours to read the Bible. Um, talk about the <laughs> Satan understanding more than we do. Funny enough, to um, say you're a big fan of the Seahawks, and they, on average, go to two playoff games. Uh, that season, if you're just following them, is also 70 hours. I'm guessing, if you look into some things, it's, a, it's amazing how many time wasters we have, some distractions we have, that equal 70 hours. Uh, I'm almost tempted to keep going into looking into that because our enemy knows us. And and we're like, yeah, sure. Distract me, baby. Now, I'm going to quote Blaise Pascal. He is a 17th century theologian. We fear sitting still and we fear silence. Driving every diversion from international events to international tourism is the promise of escaping boredom and routine at home, said Blaise Pascal. He went on to say, I've discovered that all the unhappiness of men arises from one single fact that they cannot stay quietly in their own chamber. They go up on the roof. They go wandering around at night. Why? Staring at the ceiling of our quiet bedrooms with only our thoughts about ourselves and reality and God, it's unbearable. He went on, we think we want peace and silence and freedom and leisure, but deep down we know that this would actually be unendurable. In fact, we want to complexify our lives. We don't have to. We want to. We want to be harried and hassled and busy. Unconsciously, we want the very thing we complain about. For if we had leisure, we would look at ourselves and listen to our hearts and see the great gaping hole there and we would be terrified. Because it is, in the hole, it, it is a hole so big that nothing but God can fill it. Now, why is solitary confinement the worst possible punishment you can give a prisoner? Small room with no distractions. That, that, why do we consider that torture? Because if most of us, sitting alone, right, we think it's because we, we are social creatures and we need social interaction. Set that aside for a second, though. Who really wants to just sit alone in the quiet with their thoughts? If we're honest, we are grateful for the harrying schedules and the lack of quiet. We are terrified of what we might hear. Alone, we are terrified of what we might find. We want anything to break the silence that makes me feel the weight of my mortality and the need of a Savior. Confronted with real communion with Jesus, aren't we a little terrified of it? Aren't we worried about what he would say? Are you worried about what your conscience would say? Uh, And I, I, my wife will testify. I hate silence. I'm like the king of turn on music, whatever, I don't even care. Hey, kids, you want to listen to this stupid kid album that you guys love so much? Pooh Bear? I'll listen to that. Because I'm uncomfortable with silence. It's taken a great deal of time and effort to sit there, because you know what comes up are strange and bizarre things that I'm too distracted most time to tell is there. Uh, I've been the king of this my whole life. The car starts making a noise, and I just turn the music up. Turn it up. Turn it up. Turn it up, you can't have a conversation. I remember my dad getting in the car, he's like, why is the music up so loud? I turn the music down, he goes, oh. <laughs> uh, what's that? I have no idea, dad. It just started making that sound, and I, the music was the way I avoided it. And so you, you, there you are, walking down the road towards the tempter, and there's this clunk, 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 clunk sound. In the quiet moments, there's this noise, and, and you hate it. And there's God, and he wants to talk to you, but you're terrified of him. And so what you do is you fill your life with distractions. We think, oh, if we just had more time, if we just had fewer things to do. No, we love having so much to do. We just pack that schedule out. So this is what next week is all about. I want us to be able to sit down and in the silence and listen. I want us to be able to read the word of God Pray to him and sit there and hear what he has to say to us. Because when you do that, all of this ghetto building, all of this loneliness, all of this overburden, all of this stuff that you have, that you don't, that that is just weighing you down, and you're just running from distraction, distraction to avoid it, all of it will be taken care of. We need to cancel some stuff. We need to shut some things off. We need to put some things down. Don't just do something. Sit there. Martha, Martha, it's time to put everything else aside. Jesus is here. He's here. Come and sit at his feet and listen. That's what next week is about. Because unless we do that, we are never leaving these ghettos. We're never going to do it. Amen. Father, we thank you so much um, for your word. I I pray, Father, now I, I worry myself about as the master is gone, beating the servants in your absence. And I pray, Father, that uh, though these were hard things to say and hard things to hear, that you would in fact comfort us in them, that you would expose our sin and through that heal us. Your hands and your feet were pierced. Through death came eternal life. You've called us to die, and there are things in our lives, Father, that we so desperately need to die to, and we cannot do them alone. All of the things I mentioned today are too impossible for us, and so we avoid it by taking up one of the things and making it the thing because we think we can carry that all by ourselves, and we're doing a terrible job. And we pray, Father, now that you would call us into communion with you, that you would bid us come and sit, that you would give us the strength to hear you and to apply what we hear from you to cry out to you, to be comforted by you. We pray, Father, that you would, by your Spirit, draw us deeper into yourself, deeper into fellowship with you, and deeper into fellowship with one another. And amen.